Our first reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 1 and starting at verse 26, which can be found on page 2. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, It was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Our second reading is from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. That's on page 1205. That's Hebrews chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, though his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today saying through David so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, Today if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. 
Andrew, thanks very much indeed for reading. Let me add my welcome to you. It's lovely to have you with us this morning. My name is Simon Dowdy. I'm the minister here at Grace Church. Now, please, will you turn back to our first reading, so from t- to uh, Genesis chapter 1 in the Bibles on page 2. And we're starting a new series of talks today with the title Identity. What does it mean to be human? Now, I guess it's the kind of question which we might easily dismiss as being of interest only to armchair philosophers. And yet, just a moment's thought shows that it is a question that we grapple with throughout life. It's the question that asked by the teenager. You know, what does it mean for me to be me rather than simply the child of my parents? Or the new graduate setting out on their own. Who am I? What am I going to do with my life as it stretches out ahead of me? Or the new parents, as they marvel at the little bundle in their arms, and yet at the same time they ask themselves, what is this new life that I'm responsible for? What does it mean to be human? Or in the disappointments and adjusted reality of midlife, what is life actually about? Or in old age, as horizons Shrink, what's it mean to be human in a culture that prizes and values youth and energy? You may be here this morning as a committed Christian or an inquirer or a skeptic. I take it the question is no less real. What's it mean to be human? What's it mean to be me? Who am I? How do I flourish? But it may be that you've been rather puzzled by the title of today's talk, Made to Rest. That sounds good, you say, but isn't it a rather strange place to start? Well, no, for the simple reason that as we read through the creation account from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, to Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, there are two great highlights. The first highlight is the creation of mankind, of men and women. The second highlight is the day of rest, which shows that humanity is the pinnacle of creation, while rest is the goal of creation. And if you turn to the outline on the back of the service sheet, you'll see uh, we're going to look at each of those two things in turn this morning. First of all, humanity, the pinnacle of creation. What does it mean to be human? Genetic research suggests that chimps share between 90 and 95% of human DNA. A few years ago, that led the National Geographic magazine to proclaim Darwin Darwin wasn't just provocative in saying we are descended from the apes. He didn't go far enough. We are apes in every way, from our long arms and tailless bodies to our habitats and temperaments. But here's the thing. Does DNA explain everything? What's the significance of the 10 to 5% of our DNA, which is not like chimps? After all, we also share 50% of our DNA with bananas. But few would suggest that gets us halfway in terms of working out what it means to be human. Instead, have a look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That is the key to what it means to be human. It is to be made in God's image. It's repeated, verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. That is the key to human identity, knowing that we are created in the image of God. You and I are not simply upgraded apes, you know, the next software update in the evolutionary process. Nor are we just a a lucky number, the result of a random throw of the dice. No, we can only understand what it means to be human and our true identity in relation to God. We may share much of our DNA with chimps, but the fact is they cannot know God and don't know God. How extraordinary that God should care for humanity as he does. It's what Psalm 8 celebrates. I put verse 4 on the outline. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? We are made for a relationship with God just as a goldfish is made for water. I just imagine a goldfish saying to its owner, I'm fed up with this fish tank. I'm going to go and explore the big wide world and discover myself and get out of this fish tank and go on a search for my true identity and meaning. Well, I guess at that point you'd need to sit down with your goldfish, wouldn't you, and have a few straight and honest words. It's the problem of something like mindfulness. While there may be some use in uh, stopping to think in the middle of our busy lives, the problem with mindfulness is it's entirely inward. It just looks within for answers, for peace, for meaning, for purpose, and so on. Which, of course, is why it's simply another fad which will come and go. Because, actually, I can't understand what it means to be me, what it means to be human, apart from in relation to God and in reference to God. I don't find the answers by looking within, but instead by looking upwards. It also means, of course, that we don't find our identity in relationships. Yes, you and I are made for relationship. We're made male and female. We'll see that in two weeks' time. But we don't discover uh, who we are, what it means to be human, simply through human friendships. It's the Bridget Jones syndrome, isn't it? Life revolves around uh, others and her friendships and how other people think of her. It takes her down a never-ending path, uh, searching for the perfect relationship. And yet it's elusive. Each one is inevitably disappointing because we don't find our ultimate sense of who we are through friendships and relationships. Nor do we find it in leisure or pleasure so easy, isn't it, to live for leisure, to live for holidays or, or weekends or retirements, as if that is the goal and purpose of life? There was a wonderful cartoon in the paper a couple of months ago showing a couple relaxing in their deck chairs on a desert island paradise. All you could see was this uh, island, you know, with the one palm tree and these two people on their, on their deck chairs, drinks in hand, soaking up the sun. And the caption underneath simply read oh no, we're still us. 
It's why that holiday or retirement can be so disappointing, so unfulfilling, because we take ourselves with us. Yes, I am still me. Nor do we find ourselves in our work, which in a global city like London, which proclaims that you are what you do, you are your job, I take it as wonderfully liberating. It frees us from the, from the workaholism, which is so endemic and destroys people, people's health and marriages and families and friendships. It frees us from getting our sense of worth and who I am through our work. If you're in a dull, boring job or if your career has, has flatlined, you are no less human. It's why retirement can be so hard, can't it, for so, for so many people? Because this sense of loss, loss of my identity. Or, you know, the new mum. At work, she was valued. At work, she felt good about herself. But now she's just changing nappies and pushing a pram. Is she worth less? No. God's creation blueprint frees us from the oppression of a culture that says your identity is in the job that you do. And it is oppressive. So then, humanity is the pinnacle of creation. I discover my identity, what it means to be human, by looking to God. Now, that is expressed, secondly, in rest, the goal of creation. Have a look at Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now here's the question, why is there a seventh day at all? I mean, aren't we done by the end of the sixth day? The previous verse, chapter 1, verse 31, uh, that God saw everything that he had made. Behold, it is very good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Haven't we finished? I mean, it's not as if God needs a rest. You know, he doesn't sit down with a cup of tea and put his feet up in front of the telly. And yet, actually, the whole of the creation account from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, has been leading to this seventh day. So the very first verse, Genesis 1.1, in the original language, is just seven words. In the creation account, seven times we read, and God saw that it was good. Fourteen times we're told that God speaks. Thirty-five times God's name is mentioned. In other words, the Genesis account is brilliant practice if you're trying to learn your seven times table. The effect is that we are drawn to this seventh day. And unlike every other day, which is just numbered once, the seventh day is numbered three times. Twice in verse 2, once in verse 3, as if to underline its significance. And what's more, unlike the other days, the seventh day is ongoing. It doesn't finish. You see, look back to chapter 1, verse 5, where we're told at the end of the first day, And there was evening and there was morning the first day. 
It's repeated at the end of day two in verse eight. There was evening and there was morning the second day. And again, at, every, at the end of every day, except the seventh day. Because the seventh day is the goal and destination of creation. And now that creation is complete, history is ready to begin and proceed. Just as when you fly to that holiday destination, you get off the plane, you check into your hotel, you unpack all your stuff, you say to yourself, hooray, let's go and explore. Our holiday started, let's see what's out there. And that is precisely what we see in the rest of Genesis chapter 2. Do read uh, the whole chapter later on. It shows us what rest, what this seventh day looks like. Trees that are good for food and pleasing to the eyes. The center of riches and gold. Work that is satisfying. Relationships which are harmonious. Unity between man and wife. It is a picture of heaven itself as Mankind, men and women, walk with God in the cool of the day. Far from being repressive or uh, restricting, here is joy and purpose and pleasure in the company of each other and in the company of God. As God places humanity in a beautiful garden full of abundant provision and under his gracious rule. Here is where true human purpose and identity is to be found in a relationship with the living God. Now, of course, if we're honest, we know in our own lives that we don't enjoy the perfect rest of Genesis chapter 2. The explanation for that comes in Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve rebel against God, where they're thrown out of the Garden of Eden, where they are banished from God's presence. Flick on to the end of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now that describes what all of us are naturally like. We are alienated from God. We no longer enjoy the perfect rest we are created to enjoy. And yet, wonderfully, it's not the end of the story. In the book of Exodus, as God gives his people the Ten Commandments, the fourth commandment is to rest. Exodus 20, verses 8 to 9, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. It was meant to be a reminder to God's people that their identity didn't lie in their work. It didn't lie within themselves, but in God. And it didn't lie fundamentally in this present world, but instead in the fulfillment of God's promises in the future. Because the whole of the Old Testament anticipates a new Adam who is sent from God. Not a rebel but one who lives in the perfect image of God, who will rule perfectly over his creation, who will restore his people to that position of perfect rest. That man is Jesus Christ. Turn on to Matthew's Gospel, page 984, Matthew chapter 11.
As the Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's a verse that's often taken simply to mean that Jesus offers uh, to help those who are feeling tired. But you see, the promise is far, far greater than that. It is a promise of true rest. No longer under the judgment of God, where we left Adam and Eve in the garden, outside the garden at the end of Genesis chapter 3, but instead enjoying perfect relationship with God. Just what we are created for. That's why... Jesus died on the cross, taking the right judgment of God that we deserve for our sin, so that those who trusted him might be forgiven, might be part of his people, both in this world and in the next. True relationship with God. Life as it's meant to be. Me as I'm meant to be is to be found in Jesus Christ alone. It's just what we see at the end of the Bible. Turn on with you to Revelation chapter 21 at the end of the Bible on page 1250. And here is the Apostle John and his, his revelation of what the new heavens and the new earth look like. Verses 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Now, Revelation doesn't, doesn't use the language of rest but it certainly describes rest. It is a picture of those who belong to Jesus living in perfect relationship with God in the new creation. And just as Genesis chapter 2 assures us that God is the great finisher, he finished his first creation, so one day he will bring to completeness his new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. So, why don't we spend the rest of our time thinking about some of the implications. First of all, for those of us here this morning who have yet to put our trust in Jesus Christ, God has issued a wonderful invitation, an open invitation. He invites us to enter his rest. It's why we had that second reading this morning from Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 1, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. Verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest. 
verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter his rest. Imagine for an old car just rusting away in a lock-up garage somewhere. It hasn't been driven for years. Completely unable to fulfill the purpose for which it was created. And then someone takes it on. They buy it on eBay. They give it a new engine. There's a long restoration project and finally a glorious new paint job. And it is wonderfully restored to its original created purpose. That is precisely what happens when we put our trust in Jesus Christ and begin to follow him. We enter God's rest. We are restored to our original created purpose to live in relationship with God. And if you're here this morning and you've uh, never done that or you've never thought about doing it, then I'd love to uh, chat to you over coffee about how you might do so. What about those of us who have put our trust in Jesus? Well, strikingly, of all the Ten Commandments, the only one the New Testament doesn't repeat is the one about the Sabbath. In other words, there may still be some wisdom in having a day of rest, but it's no longer a command. It's not a matter of obedience. Because if you and I belong to Jesus Christ, we have entered God's rest. And therefore, just as every single day in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 2, was a day to experience God's rest, so for those now who belong to Jesus Christ, every day, not just one day in seven, but every day is a day to experience and enjoy and express that rest. In other words, every day we're to express the fact that life is not ultimately about this creation and this world, but instead the world to come, having our sights firmly fixed there. And that we're made not to live for ourselves or for friendships and relationships or for leisure and pleasure or for work, but we are made for God. Every day is a day to live for Jesus as Lord and King. Every day to live with that clear future focus and perspective. Let me say it is gloriously liberating. Wonderfully so. Because it means you can be a, well perhaps a failure or certainly very ordinary in the eyes of the world or in the eyes of uh, your wider family or even in terms of what you thought you might get out of life. And yet if you belong to Jesus Christ, your life is on track. Is that not a wonderful thing? There may be plenty of things, you know, 5, 10, 20 years ago, which you'd have loved to have done and achieved. You know, perhaps you long to be married or to have children or perhaps a different set of life circumstances. You may feel that your life is in, in, in ways disappointing or your job unfulfilling. Perhaps your health is failing. Or perhaps you just feel very ordinary. And yet if you know Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that he brings, you have been restored to the purpose for which you were created. To know him, to live for him, to serve him, and to enjoy him, both in this world and the next. Let's spend a few moments in reflection, and I shall then lead us in prayer.
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the extraordinary privilege we have as men and women, as those who are created in your image, uh, to know you. Uh, We praise you for the Lord Jesus, for his death on the cross, the one who invites us into his rest. We praise you, Heavenly Father, for the new creation to come, even better than that first creation. We're sorry, Heavenly Father, when we uh, see our identity in our either within just ourselves or in our work or in leisure or in plenty of other things. And we pray instead we would be those who first and foremost see our identity in relation to you and to the Lord Jesus, who would keep our eyes focused on the new creation. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.